0: You're listening to the Royal Society of Medicine Digital Health Council podcast where we explore health tech innovations that are transforming healthcare with me your host Dr Annabelle Painter. My work as a clinical AI fellow at Health Education England and NHSX explored how we can confidently deploy AI at scale within the NHS. During our research, it became clear that workforce transformation was going to be a crucial step in achieving this goal, and specifically that we're going to need specialised AI multidisciplinary teams to create and evaluate AI. My guest today, Harris Schwabe, has already managed to make this a reality and has built the first specialised NHS medical AI team at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital in London, who have developed and evaluated several AI algorithms for use within the Trust. Harris has also led the development of new AI deployment platforms and has launched the NHS Clinical AI Fellowship Scheme. I'm lucky enough to be working in Harris's AI team as a Clinical AI Fellow, and I'm delighted that Harris is joining me on the podcast to share his story and his thoughts on what is needed to make AI development and deployment at scale a success within the NHS. Key discussion points from our conversation include the role of people, policy and platforms as key enablers to AI at scale. We also discussed the unique value that individuals with a dual skill set of clinical and technical expertise bring to the NHS, allowing it to become an intelligent AI customer, a learning healthcare system and a developer of in-house algorithms that solve problems that wouldn't be tackled by commercial AI companies. Harris also shares his vision for speeding up the delivery of AI through a platform approach and the work he is now doing with the company he has recently founded, Newton's Tree. Hello, Harris, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Annabel, thanks for having me.
0: To set the scene for the podcast, Harris, can you please give us some context about what you do and how you got to where you are today. You've described your career to me in the past as a Cinderella career, and I love that description. So please, can you tell us more?
1: Yes, no, happy to. So, so I'm a consultant clinical scientist. i working at Geyser Thomas's and I'm head of the clinical scientific computing team, which I sort of sometimes describe as the NHS's first dedicated medical AI team, where we're essentially facilitating the adoption of, of AI and guys that Thomas's, but trying to help out the broader NHS where we can. And then also more recently, I became founder and CEO of Newton's Tree, uh, which is a health tech startup. In terms of how, how I got to this position, probably slightly uncommon to a lot of your listeners. So I started off as a physicist. That was my sort of undergraduate training and then trained as a medical physicist in the NHS as part of the scientist training program where I learned about healthcare and clinical science and things like that. And started my career in the NHS, working in imaging primarily, specifically MRI involved in the end-to-end process of an MRI service from commissioning, including building planning, all the way to analyzing images. And, And then as my career progressed, I got increasingly more involved in the image analysis side of things. I then picked up an NIHR doctoral fellowship to start a PhD looking at using machine learning for prognosis in brain tumor patients. And that opened my eyes to the space of AI and and machine learning. And then increasingly got more and more involved in that in my day job at Guides Thomas's. And it sort of culminated in me founding the clinical scientific computing team. Uh, and those kinds of teams exist elsewhere in the NHS, but didn't until then at Guys and Tommies. And that was in January 21. And I've been the head of it uh, ever since then.
0: I feel like you've glossed over there this really impressive step which was forming this team. And you mentioned that there are several others across the NHS. But I feel that the team at GCT is is quite unusual in having such a concentrated highly skilled uh, set of individuals working specifically on AI development and evaluation and deployment within the NHS and focusing in on that for a second why did you create that team and why do you think having teams like that is important within the NHS?
1: You know that's a good question so there was a couple of uh, I guess key ingredients and sort of tailwinds around that time that led to the creation of the team. One of the major ones was the significant progress that AI had made in healthcare from say 2015, where things were very sort of experimental and broken. In the past few years, the industry has matured and there are a lot of products that seemingly are are ready for adoption. But having worked in in the space and with those data-driven technologies, it became clear that often there were a few key things that were missing when it came to being able to successfully adopt these technologies. And one of the key things was having the right people in the hospital that had the capacity and capability to understand these technologies, to be able to evaluate them appropriately and to support their adoption and wide-scale use. And then at the same time the London AI Centre was formed, which was a large government grant and um, that involved a consortia across London, including Guy's and St. Thomas's. And the, the consortium was funded to develop and deploy AI technologies. And initially, the, the Guys and St. Thomas's budget had no resources for an AI team. And my involvement in the project led to me to realize that this was a huge missing part of the puzzle and that no matter how much engagement we had with industry, and we had a lot as part of the AI center, no matter no matter how much engagement we had with academia, if we didn't invest in people in the hospital that could uh, take on these technologies, provide feedback, help with integration and adoption, then it will lead to ultimately to failure of the project. And The initial funding of the team was just a bit of sort of ingenuity where, because of the pandemic, there was an underspend on that grant. And I took that to our clinical director and essentially negotiated a budget out of that and said, look, instead of, you know, funding more PAs for radiologists who don't have the time anyway to do a lot of the things that they want them to do, you know, in sort of late 2020, early 21 why don't you let me hire some clinical scientists? And what they will do is they'll help with data curation and labeling and with working with IT and evaluating these technologies. And and he he was happy with that. And I hired the first ever clinical scientist in artificial intelligence in the NHS. And this was actually before the team formally existed. So I was still working as an MRI physicist, managing the first clinical scientist in, in AI. And the team snowballed from there. So as we did more and more activity that was funded by grants, um, that was funded by commercial activity, we were then able to hire more staff and more senior staff to a stage where we are today, where we have, I think, almost 20 people, including trainees and fellows. And one of the, the critical things that I was very conscious of when I was building and hiring the team was I... I was personally deeply appreciative of my time as an MR physicist, where I basically grew up inside the MRI tech room, sitting next to radiographers on the front line, really understanding the clinical workflow. And it led to so much benefit for me and my ability to be effective in the hospital as a scientist. And so when I was hiring people, I had a huge bias towards hiring people who had less AI experience, but more clinical experience, because I thought. Understanding how the NHS works is very hard to teach. And it's something you just have to live and experience for yourself. So almost everyone that ended up forming the team was from some other clinical service, from radiotherapy, from ultrasound. Uh, we even started hiring medically trained staff from genetics, from radiology, from cardiology, to the point now where we're, I think probably the most professionally diverse team in the NHS. And I think is critical to why we've been so effective, because we're ultimately made up of people who not only deeply care about but deeply understand frontline clinical services.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think you've hit on something so important there, which is about the value of this dual skill set of both clinical and technical skills, which is it's rare to find currently within the NHS workforce but is mm. going to be such an important dual skill set going forward. Can you just give us a little bit more of an idea of of what the team currently looks like? You mentioned that there's like a very diverse professional group, but can you give an idea of the kind of skills and backgrounds of the people who who sit within your team and and why you see that that diversity being important
1: yeah so so they they're professionally diverse and and also incidentally diverse from a personal perspective as well. One of the things i i I want to bring up uh, because it just popped into my mind is people often talk about the, the challenge of hiring diverse technical teams. But actually, from a personal characteristic perspective, we're, we're very diverse. We have more than 50% women on the team. Uh, for a data science team is, is very uncommon, and have a very good spread of ethnicities as well. And, and that aspect of it, pretty critical when it comes to the adoption of data-driven technologies, because we've all, especially very recently, become aware of the risks and harms and challenges involved in large-scale automation with AI. The fact that, you know, systemic inequities, other prejudices can be reinforced and compounded by these technologies. It's important that the team that are responsible for building and deploying these is representative from a personal perspective as well. Talking from a, a professional point of view, the team is still largely dominated by clinical scientists. So, people who have fundamentally a technical background, speaking from a, sort of an undergraduate perspective, but have spent a significant portion of their professional career in clinical, either directly in clinical practice or assisting clinical practice. So, for example, our lead for quality management system spent all of his career as a radiotherapy physicist helping deliver radiotherapy treatment to cancer patients. We have people who come from a fetal medicine background, mainly around imaging in utero. So doing technical activities, but like I said, deeply intertwined or embedded within those clinical services. And what that means is that when they then come to the team, like I I said before, is that they have this sort of deep and nuanced understanding of how medicine is actually delivered and and practiced. And um, but then we also have team members who were sort of medical first, right? So I mentioned we have a geneticist on the team, we have radiologists, we have cardiologists, we have you who's <laughs> a, a primary care physician who who are medical first, who then or or immediately prior to had developed technical understanding or expertise to a degree. And, and so we actually have the full spectrum. If you imagine sort of the two extreme being you know purely technical, no clinical understanding, and then purely medical and no technical understanding, aside from those extremes, I think within the team we have a full spectrum represented. And so that means that when you're, for example, Trying to do, you know, hazard analysis of a particular technology, or you're trying to uh, implement, you know, user-centered design. You're well-equipped as a team to do that effectively.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting because it's widely understood within the NHS how valuable it is to have clinical MDT teams with a mixture of professional specialities contributing to the care of patients. But I think something that isn't talked about enough is the value of having these kind of technical MDT teams where you have people from a variety of technical backgrounds and clinical backgrounds working together. And once you experience that, it is quite transformational to see how all of that expertise really compounds into some really exciting um, team working and solutions that can be developed from a team like that. And it's great to see that happening at GSTT.
1: Just on that point, just before you move on, I think one of the key points that I would like to reinforce. I, I think what makes us particularly successful is not just that we are multidisciplinary team, but that we value multidisciplinary individuals. Because often you will get, you know, teams that are stood up for, you know, implementing an EHR or EPMA or some other digital or health IT project, and you will have clinicians in that implementation team but they will be treated and trained purely to provide a medical or clinical voice. Mm. And the fact that they might have technical expertise or that they could have technical expertise is not valued at all. But I I think that having in a single person, in a single brain, an appreciation of both sides of the problem is deeply valuable because it allows you to shortcut to very good solutions much more efficiently than having them exist in different individuals in the same team. I would much rather have a team of multidisciplinary individuals than a team of individuals made up of multiple disciplines, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that's a really good insight. And I mean, I completely agree with you. And I think it's about moving clinicians away from being seen as subject matter experts for a technical team and instead integrating exactly. clinicians into the team themselves and it's exactly. so much more efficient and dynamic to develop technology in that way what i would like to ask is you know this team as we've mentioned is is quite unusual in the nhs at the moment and hopefully in the future we'll see more of these teams developing but my question is we have a lots of ai being deployed within the nhs at the moment where there aren't these teams in place so What do you think the risks are of of deploying AI in that way where there isn't a team? And what is the value of having these teams in place?
1: Great question. The the answer to the first part is well, the, the proof is almost in the pudding in that, why do we not have large scale adoption of AI? Why do we not have journals littered with articles of studies? that these hospitals that are buying and using AI have published. Why do we not have robust, well-established governance frameworks? Why are we still so immature in our thinking as a system or as a country when it comes to regulation of continuously learning AI systems? And it's because we haven't invested in building up H.S. capacity and capability when it comes to AI adoption. And so often what's happening is that hospitals are buying, you know, point solutions, you know, a fracture detection algorithm to help in ED, for example, the process of selecting the product is done improperly or imperfectly. It then gets implemented in the same way and it gets delivered or used, but nobody's managing the benefits, nobody's reporting any of the risks. But often these are driven by the innovation agenda, where often one of the failings is that doing something new is good in and of itself, which I think is a serious risk and, and harm that AI introduces, is that people assume that doing any AI is good, which is definitely not the case. And, and then that, that team, that person then moves on. And so then there is no institutional knowledge. There's no learning of what went well in the emergency department with that fracture algorithm and what went badly. And and either there isn't a second AI project in that institution or they continue making the same mistakes uh, without learning. And ultimately where we're we're wanting to get to with data-driven technologies is a learning healthcare system, is where a healthcare system implements data-driven technologies then learns uh, from the outcomes of them that are delivered by them, rather, and then implements more and you get this sort of positive feedback loop. Um, But that's not what's happened so far. However, by investing in, in a dedicated capacity and capability, you're able to then reap all sorts of benefits. You get to build repeatable processes that Not only continuously deliver value, but make it more efficient each time you do it. So the next time, for example, you want to deploy an AI algorithm that helps you with your MDT decision making in cancer, it will be faster, quicker and cheaper. And the system impact is that you then begin to be able to engage the market and demand for and get better products because you become a much more intelligent purchaser of of AI products. One of the things that sort of plagued the industry in sort of the late 2010s was that there were a plethora of products on the market that nobody wanted to buy and that nobody had asked for. And that was, I think, distinctly a failing of the healthcare system because we didn't know what AI could do or what we wanted it to do. And, And ultimately, you have to have technologists and technology experts on the buyer side, on the side of the public services that can begin to influence the market and say, actually, we did this project. This is what we learned from it. And now we're trying to do something else. We know that this is what we want from the market and then the market can react. And and then we have a product that we want to procure and everybody's happy. The The other sort of unique benefit of having internal AI capability, is that there will be some problems that we will face, particularly as a socialised healthcare system, where it's not commercially viable for anyone to produce a product to solve it. We had one of these examples at the Evelina Children's Hospital, uh, which is the the children's hospital attached to St Thomas's, where um, we needed some support to help with out-of-hours reporting for neonatal premature babies, who were admitted at the evelina and were at risk of bowel perforation, which is a very serious condition, requires emergency surgery. And often, if an x-ray is done overnight for a baby, sometimes these findings can be missed and the diagnosis is delayed and the intervention is delayed leading to poor outcomes. Now, the number of cases that happens nationally is probably in the low hundreds. There's no company that's going to go through the effort of curating all that data, labeling it, getting um, MHRA approval, then trying to sell it for such a small population. But because we have an AI team at Cards & we have the opportunity to, to solve that problem ourselves. And And we have, we built a product from our own data using our own internal engineers and building the software from scratch and training it on our own GPUs, built a product that can detect very reliably whether the bowel has been perforated in a particular X-ray. And we're just in the process of um, prospectively evaluating that technology. Now that's fantastic because now there's a cohort of patients that are now no longer excluded from the benefits of this technology. And so it allows us to also challenge the systemic inequities that a model that depends purely on external suppliers can sometimes compound.
0: I think there's a a few key points to pull out from that that I I really love. The the first one is the fact that having these teams allows the NHS to be a much more strategic customer for AI. So it's about making sure that we're spending NHS money effectively and we're choosing the best technologies that can deliver the most clinical value. The second is about allowing the NHS to become a learning healthcare system and being able to share the insights that we gain from deploying AI technologies across the NHS. And the third is what you were just talking about, which is having in-house expertise in creating AI and evaluating AI algorithms allows us to create solutions to clinical problems that aren't viable businesses but could still deliver significant value within the NHS. And that's such a big gap in the current system. Obviously, uh, private companies are looking for solutions where they can make significant money at scale, but so many uh, healthcare problems don't fit within that bucket. So, So moving on to this discussion about deploying AI at scale, what do you feel is needed within the NHS to allow this to happen? Because as we mentioned, we are seeing pockets of AI deployment, we're seeing AI algorithms like the ones you talked about being created at a specific location in the NHS. But how do we get these technologies deployed safely and effectively throughout the NHS? What are the key enablers?
1: For me, it's relatively straightforward. Whenever there's been, you know, sort of a failed implementation of AI technology or or digital health technologies in general, is usually because one of three key ingredients or maybe a combination of them has been missing. And for me, they're people, platforms and policy. And so I'll take each of them one by one. So, So people, when I say people are missing, it's usually either we don't literally have the right job roles in the hospital, to facilitate the adoption of the technology, or we haven't given the the existing people the right skills. So in one circumstance, it might be the fact that you don't have NHS data scientists in a particular project, and therefore the project fails. Or it could be that the clinical leadership for that particular implementation does not have a working knowledge or a good enough appreciation or understanding of the technology for them to be effective as a clinical lead in that project. And and we've done some things to try and address this problem. So one of the other roles that I really enjoy having is being director of the Clinical AI Fellowship Program, which started off as a very small experiment in South London to see if we could embed AI data science training alongside existing medical training pathways we managed to collaborate with the the medical deaneries in in London and the southeast to get some resources to allow us to essentially buy out the time of trainees two days a week for a year and place them at a trust that was doing uh, an AI project to allow them to get hands-on experience and then also delivering these monthly workshops to give them some of the more sort of foundational and theoretical underpinnings for their education and training. That program has been going really well. We're now recruiting our third cohort and we are virtually national. In fact, we're also now recruiting in in this third cohort from Scotland and Wales as well. And like I said, has been an effort to try and solve part of that people problem. So part of it is, you know, hiring these DDAT roles these digital data technology roles into the NHS through the scientists and the engineers but then it's also about how do we equip our medical or clinical staff with complementary or sometimes the same skills as well. Um, However there are still gaps in the system so eventually or even at the beginning a lot of these AI implementation projects will require sign off from a director of operations or from a CFO somebody who is not part of the project team and is not a subject matter expert, but has either budgetary responsibility or some other kind of organizational responsibility, it's critical for them to understand or have an appreciation of what the technology is and the potential benefits that they should expect to see in their organization. Because if they still think of AI as some kind of fairy tale or future utopia that is not Part of their, you know, daily business, then they're at risk of making the wrong decision. And I've seen business cases get rejected because the CFO doesn't have an appreciation of the benefits that could be realised, including financial, from this investment. And then the other end, we have policy, and and I use the term policy very loosely. I mean everything from, you know, national regulation down to sort of departmental SOPs. If you don't have you know, a how-to guardrails of how to do something, oftentimes, either the thing won't get done, or rogue individuals will do things very unsafely. And both at our institution, but also nationally, we've made a lot of progress in this space. There's been, there was early work done by the NHS AI lab in developing something called the Buyer's Guide to AI, which was uh, essentially an extended checklist for hospitals for what they should be looking at when procuring AI technologies. The scientific computing team at Guy and Tommy's had the good fortune to be able to contribute to that, which was great. There recently came out just last year a new BSI standard 30440, which gives you guidance on how to validate AI in healthcare. And the MHRA and NICE and other colleagues have made a lot of progress around different sort of policy work streams around continuously learning AI about the need for AI to be localized to each hospital, as well as making a navigation service for innovators to better navigate regulation. So so those are some of the challenges, but also a lot of good progress has been made. And then finally in the middle is the platform. If it's not easy and cost efficient for us to plug in AI technology, then we're always going to be stuck in first gear. And the reason why that's particularly pertinent for data driven or AI technologies is that it's a a learning cycle. We have to experience AI technologies for us to build up capacity capability, for us to become intelligent consumers or, or buyers. But if it's so expensive in enterprise IT costs, in terms of risk management and implementation for us to get it installed physically then we're never going to get that started or even if we do get the first one done we'll be so exhausted from the technical integration of that you know fracture technology that we don't want to dream of doing another one it'll take us a year or two just to recover and so What a platform approach allows us to do is drive down the cost of adoption to nearly zero. What I want for the NHS is for it to be able to download and use AI algorithms the way you download iPhone apps. You have, like everybody has their favorite app that they use for navigation on their phone, whether it's Google Maps, Apple Maps, Waze, whatever it is. But how did everybody become such an expert in navigation? It just through trial and error because it's so it's free to download any of them everybody downloads them tries them for a little while and then deletes them if they don't like it and you begin to build within yourself knowledge and preferences around the different applications and we need to provide a way to do that with medtech and, and ai specifically as well and so that was something that i've been working on with the london ai center i invented something called aide the ai deployment engine which was an enterprise AI platform that allows hospitals to essentially download and integrate AI models, something that previously would have taken months, they can do in half an hour. And and that's what led me to founding Newton's Tree, which is essentially taking the same approach and deploying this platform in NHS hospitals and internationally to allow hospitals to begin to deploy, learn and integrate AI as part of clinical pathways. And that ultimately is going to be the linchpin, because if we can make it easy to engage with AI, then we can figure out the policy questions and we can figure out training and education.
0: To finish, Harris, if you could do anything for the NHS, if I put you in charge and gave you whatever resources you needed, what thing or few things do you think would make the biggest difference? in making AI deployment at scale a success in the NHS?
1: Uh, this is a great, also a terrible question to to spring on me. So, 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 I mean, the first thing I'll say as a sort of a preface is that if people who are working in this space find it hard, I, I would just want to let them know that's okay. This is very hard. Like, this is not easy. Healthcare, doing anything in healthcare is hard. Doing AI is hard. Doing AI in healthcare is doubly difficult. And if, if, so if I had access to, to resources, I think the, the thing that I'm proud to be able to say is that I wouldn't do too much different in that I do genuinely believe that the keys to success for large scale adoption are people, platforms and policy. And I've had the good fortune to work on all of those at quite a high level in, in the country. But the thing that currently, sort of quote unquote, keeps me up at night when it comes to the adoption journey is money and finances and how these technologies get financed. And and when I say how they get financed, it's not simply in terms of like which budget do I buy this technology with, but it's recognizing that the entire journey. For a hospital or for a system from hiring their first in-house person to having a fully capable AI ready organization requires investment through that entire life cycle. How, how is that going to be invested in? How do you hire that first AI engineer? How do you invest in an enterprise AI wide team? And, and even when it comes to buying these technologies, how do they get financed? particularly when, you know, some of the really exciting use cases are not within, you know, specific secondary care clinical departments, but are sometimes, you know, at the interface of primary and secondary care or at the population health level or at the ICS level, how those things get resourced and financed is, is critical. And so if I had access to, you know, resources in a couple of years to tackle it, that's, that's probably what I'd be paying attention to. And if we can solve that, then I think the rocket really takes off.
0: Thank you so much, Harris. It's been a pleasure to be able to pick your brains about this topic. And it's been brilliant having you on as a guest. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much, Annabelle. It's been great.